Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to England Cricket on 99.94. Cricket every day. I'm... A very baffled, confused, and um, slightly shabby Daniel Norcross. No changes there. And I am joined no by there, no, no, no changes. No, and that that was the voice of the puff pastry hangman himself, Rory Dollar, chief cricket writer of the Press Association. Um, what am I going to say? Well, let's find out. It's going to be twenty-five minutes of free-flowing madness. England cricket on ninety-nine point nine four is your new home for England cricket content. We'll be dropping into your podcast feed and on YouTube or the 99.94 app, several times every week. So please do rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for joining Cricket's Conversation. Today, we're going to be running the rule over one of the most remarkable test matches I have ever witnessed. It's completely changed my attitude to everything, and I'm not happy about it. Although, it was, let's face it, extraordinarily entertaining. But we will also, at the back end, be looking at England women's tour to the West Indies. It's not covered very easily. Can't find it on the radio. The TV coverage is sparse, but England pulled off a win in their first match of a, well, multi-format series, ODIs and T20s, but there is a tour-ending injury to Alice Capsey. We will be running the rule over that, but first of all, Rory Dollard. Um, the pitch was dead. It was absolutely moribund. It was lifeless. It was dreadful. On that pitch, England scored at 6.73 runs per over. They batted for 136.5 overs. Pakistan batted for 252 overs and scored at 3.36. That is literally half of England's scoring rate. They managed to lose 20 wickets. I don't know how. England's declaration at tea on the fourth day was one of the most stupid, ridiculous gambles I've ever witnessed in my entire life. I stand by that statement. But it worked. What do I know? Jimmy Anderson bowled 46 overs at the age of 40 and took five for 88. He bowled He bowled 12 maidens. And I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. He bowled 16 maidens in the entire match. 12 maidens in the second innings. Pakistan bowled four maidens in the entire match. The numbers tell you something, but our eyes just tell us that what we've witnessed is something staggering, revolutionary, Mm. genius, extraordinary. I mean, it's just, it's taken the rule book, it's torn it into tiny fragments and then obliterated it with a neutron bomb. What's going on? I think it could only be said at this point, Dan, after that intro, England won the Test match by 74 runs. I think that says all we need, doesn't it? That, that kind of tells the whole story of the match. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, sometimes that doesn't quite cut the mustard, does it? England win by 74 runs. Good God. <laughs> I, I think like the newspaper reports that are being written, the coverage on the radio and TV, even the odd podcast, it feels like this is going to be the first draft of a very important part of cricket history because it really does it really really does feel like we're things have changed and a tipping point has been reached because there was a tendency to say that the summer that unfolded with Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes 
in charge of England was a call it something between a summer fling and new manager bounce. There was like a slight air of unreality about it, but it wasn't going to really linger and it was going to normal service would would be resumed. We just found out that England, for, for their part at the very least, have no interest in normal service being resumed. And without wanting to be a horrible cliche of an Englishman, I cannot help but think what this looks like in an Ashes context and and what what this approach is going to do to that series. But let's leave that for another time. What I, I was trying to tot up in my head the unlikely events of that test match. It starts with England not sure that they're going to play the game on day one. They wake up on the morning yep. waiting to do a head count to see if they can start the test match on time because they've got illness running through the camp. Marcus Treskovic yeah. is taking out his whites. Paul Collingwood is, is putting bleach yeah, highly, his boots. Uh, Jonathan Agnew was worrying, worrying about being called up as an emergency <laughs> fielder. It, it was, was that it bizarre. Was it was, it was that, that bizarre. Day. So against that thing, you've got England turning up to Pakistan and playing for the first time in 17 years. So to, to be so in control of these conditions in such an alien environment is another thing. They have a team that has a stand-in wicketkeeper, a debutant in Will Jacks who didn't know he was playing until three minutes earlier, a debutant in Liam Livingston who played no part in the game through injury. You have Joe Root batting left-handed, uh, Jack Leach having the ball shined on his head, the ball reverse swinging for the first time in five days in the final session. It was a perfect storm. <laughs> you have... You have two two of the six fastest yeah. hundreds in England history. Well, you have five hundred runs on the first day of a Test match, and there were only seventy five overs bowled. That England scored nine hundred and twenty one runs in that match, I think it was, and they did it in one hundred and thirty three point five overs. If you had ninety over days, what that translates to is rocking up on the second day and seeing England bowled out an hour between lunch and tea on the second day for 921 <laughs> and then bowling for the rest of the match with a 40-year-old who's bowling at 80 miles an hour who is still going under two and over on a pitch when England are going at nine on seven. This is, it's befuddling. Ollie Robinson, did anyone have Ollie Robinson down as the ideal bowler oh, for Pakistan conditions on a utterly lifeless flat deck? I don't think I did. I, I'm fairly sure I didn't. And on the last day... England bowled seam pretty much throughout. I mean, they assessed the conditions perfectly, but they weren't bowling. It wasn't Nassim Shah bowling 90-mile-an-hour rockets. It was it was just unbelievably skillful. The, the field settings were so funky. Some of the greatest mm. photographs you're ever going to see from Phil Brown on that birthday test match. Boy, I mean, Phil there's Brown. a whole book. of Yeah, happy birthday, Phil, by the way. I've got to take him some lint milk chocolate orange oh, not, to Pakistan. Not, Can you not believe lint it? from your belly button, at least, that would be un- unwanted. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't gone down there for quite a while. Actually, I don't know what's lurking in my belly button. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, that that is that is the least of my concerns. I have to say, because uh, my biggest concern is that I genuinely think I don't know anything about cricket anymore. I've been watching it for forty six years with a nigh on obsession. I think I'm fairly well placed to understand what what should and should not happen in test matches. Most of that game utterly bemused me in a brilliant way, in an astounding way. But you're, I think you're right to say that 
something revolutionary is happening here because, you know, if England are going to play like that, what on earth do their opponents do? I mean, I, my personal view is that you call mm. England's bluff. You bat for as long as humanly possible. And where India made the fatal mistake at, um, uh, where was it, Edgebaston um, in, in this summer, they didn't, they didn't bat long enough. They didn't keep going to get over 400. They sort of like threw the last few wickets away thinking they won the game. Pakistan, similarly, I think they just, they have to win the toss and bat for as long as possible because Stokes is yeah. going to go for it. I mean, do you remember the, the absolute absurdity of the second day hearing from the England camp that having got to 506 for four, what they wanted to do was score another tw- 250 runs in 25 overs to get to 750 by lunch. <laughs> what? What? I mean, is that a plan? What kind of a plan is that? It's it, it's It's all the little things that were hidden within incredible. this game, though. So in and amongst everything, Harry Brook is on, well, well on track to score England's fastest test century in history in both innings, which are his second and third test match innings. And, he, and, he, and really, the fact that he didn't beat that um, now famous Gilbert Jessup record, which is becoming the bannerman of the Stokes era, uh, the fact that he didn't break that, I don't know how, because he was on 80, I think he had 15 balls to get 10 or something at one stage, or 10 to get 15, one of the ways around in the first innings. He was even further ahead of the game in the second innings. I mean, I don't know. I, I really, it, it does it does befuddle you. I'd say Stokes' declaration was the big the big pivot point of the game. Because as it transpires, they reckon they were eight, nine, ten minutes away from coming off the field. So Stokes' declaration was not a moment too soon. But I would have loved for everyone to put their colours on the mast and, and say what they thought. I thought I thought it was a brave and doomed folly, personally. I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. I, I, <laughs> I said it rather unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> so it's, it's publicly I didn't, available. But I did think it, and I'm willing to admit that. But I thought England had tipped over in, in the best, with the best will in the world, from the old Shane Warne adage of "must be prepared to lose." I thought they had tipped over in determined to lose, just to prove a point. You know, I, I thought they'd absolutely set sail for an inevitable defeat, purely. To, to nail their colours to the mast. So for it to come off, uh, he must he must feel like his gut instinct is untouchable, Ben Stokes, because it was perfect. We're going to talk more about Ben Stokes in the second part. We're going to talk about his batting, the, the way he batted. But just to finish off on, on your point there about almost wanting to lose, I, I got the same sort of feeling. And do you know what it is? I think it's genius. I think if you prove that you don't care if you lose then when Muppets like us interview players at the end of the game when they've lost and say, you must be a bit disappointed at throwing that game away, they'll go, huh? yeah. <laughs> do you think? I t- couldn't give a damn. I mean, it's a form of genius and it's one that I'm all for. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to try to dissect the genius that is Ben Stokes. I'm Jared Kimber, host of the Red Inca podcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new show, Double Century, on the weird, romantic, and very long history of our game. We have covered so many stories from the history of the sport already, but our new season is on the teams that got away. Listen to a new episode every Friday. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. Ben Stokes. We've got to talk about Ben Stokes. Now, I think that captaincy 
and talk about captaincy is often a, a load of psycho babble. The greatest captains, well, who are they? Clive Lloyd, Mark Taylor, uh, Steve Waugh. Do you know what great captains have in common? Mike Brearley. They have great teams with them. Mike Brearley had Hendrick, Botham, Willis, Old, Underwood, Knott, Gooch, Gower. I mean, the list of great England players goes on. England and Ben Stokes do indeed have Ben Stokes. They have Jimmy Anderson. They have Joe good Root. Start. <laughs> but this isn't. This is. It's a good start. It's a very, very good start. But it's not a great team. What Ben Stokes has done on the field is absolutely transform the way a side plays. And you very rarely see that. You see, well, I, when I say very rarely, the only the only example I can find is Jardine and Bodyline, where he rips up the rule book. We're going to play this game in an entirely different way. We have to in order to beat the Australians in thirty-two-three. Stokes is in that is in that mould, isn't he? I mean, he's he's basically looking at how cricket has been played before, and he's changing it all. He will not countenance two overs without looking like taking a wicket. Plans change constantly. Fielders go hither and yon. They go from one side of the field to the other side of the field. Bowlers bowl bouncer barrages for 10 minutes and then they bowl full reverse swingers. I mean, it's it's just captivating It is, to and to watch Michael Atherton and Nasser Hussain review his captaincy with a level of awe and lack of comprehension, really, of, of embracing options as first port of call that they would not have considered as even on the table. They were watching the coverage. They were absolutely taken aback by the way he, he he manifested himself on that game. Because it's been said by plenty of people, there's almost no need to parrot it, but here we are, so may as well. It was a draw. That game was a draw from ball one. The way that the ball did not spin a degree on the final day meant there was no sensible route to a result on that pitch. So it wasn't sensible. So, so so Ben Stokes assesses that fairly early, that there's not going to be a logical way to force a win. So he just throws logic out because it's no good to him. It's no use to him anymore, so he goes another way. It's, it's very, very uh, exciting for the format. And as I said, I think before, if we anyone had questioned his desire or his sound bites about wanting to resurrect Test cricket as well as England's fortunes within Test cricket. It doesn't. It doesn't brook water anymore. This is a guy who is fully behind the idea that the, the product and the game has to be good first of all. They want to be on the right side of it, but I don't think it's the be all and end all. They want to be involved in a vibrant, strong, exciting, um, pulsating uh, sporting product and against all odds, on a trash pitch that should be absolutely marked down by ICC and dug up immediately because it's useless. And honestly, any other two teams put on that pitch is a bang, bang, stick a nail in test cricket. Australia, Australia with Cummins, Hazelwood, Lyon, whoever else is in that side, they took four wickets on that pitch. Four. Will Jacks took more than that. England's taken 20. (laughs) Will, Will... Jack and I love Will Jacks. He's a very fine player. He's going to be a very fine player. He's not a front line no. spinner in a Test match. He took six wickets. He got the he's got the best match figures of anybody in that <laughs> match. I mean, it's, it's yes, I know. It's just 
it's chuckling. I'm, all, I'm also I'm making my own tribute. I'm, I'm making my own take... tribute to this test match by by doing this in the dark. I don't know why I'm so dark, but given that the game ended in light that's roughly similar to my front room, that's that's my tribute here. <laughs> Let me take you back though, eighteen months. With a side that wasn't massively different to Lords against New Zealand in a match that didn't matter, it wasn't even part of the World Test Championship. And Kane Williamson dangled a carrot of 270 in 75 overs or so. Eden needed to go at about 3.7 and over to win the game. They didn't even look like trying at any point. They were 40-odd for none at tee off 30 overs. It, that's, where, that's what captaincy is, isn't it? Because, you know, Joe Root was in that team. And bless him, I feel for Joe Root in one sense because he must be wondering... Is that all I needed to do? Was just go hell for leather? Was that all it was? But actually, you know, at the same time, he looks utterly rejuvenated. He looks like a a man who's now thoroughly enjoying his cricket. Look at Jimmy Anderson. Has, has Jimmy Anderson bowled better? So we we say this time and time again, but he took five for eighty eight in forty six overs on an absolute snot heap. I mean, it's that has to be about Ben Stokes. It has to be about McCullum. It has to be about the mindset. The whole set up in the England camp, the delight, the happiness with which everybody plays. You know, Jimmy Anderson, only 12 months ago, would have rocked up at that ground and just been grumpy as hell. What is this? What is this thing I'm bowling on? The enthusiasm with which he bowled on the last day just speaks volumes. And you know from talking to the players, don't you? you you've seen it happen over the last six, seven months. Just the attitude and the interviews that people give they're full of brightness and lightness and mm. joie de vivre. I mean, it's not test cricket as we know it. I didn't go to a test match to be entertained, Rory. I went there to be grumpy and dig in and talk about, you know, what was Ben Stokes doing <laughs> on the first, on the second day when he hits his first ball for six off Nazim Shah and promptly gets out, when he walks out to bat with England in a spot of bother in the second innings, wickets starting to fall when they hadn't done throughout the test match. And he swipes one up in the air to give a tame catch to cover. We're supposed to be infuriated by this kind of thing. Not not a bit of it. It's it's giving license to everybody else to play. It's a form of sacrifice. It's almost Christ-like <laughs> in its willingness to die for the greater good. I mean, this kind of hyperbole, I know it sounds crazy, but I can't think of any other way to make no, sense. No, they, they are, and I think they are more than prepared to to fall on this altar. And they were, and I think that's going to be an important part of the process because they're going to need to... They did lose once in the summer, but they're going to need to lose more and and in more hurting, hurtful ways. Like, that would have been a real pain for them to lose that test match. It would have, it would have stung because of how, how well they'd done. But this team is going to have to suck up a few raw defeats. Maybe that's the Ashes, I don't know. But it, that's part of the process. But I think the thing is, the really unlikely thing is that Ben Stokes now, and we started this section talking about Ben Stokes, he's now looking on track for 2019 not being his defining moment, which is, which is utterly incredible. This guy won England their first Men's World Cup through willpower and and bloody mindedness and skill and heart and dogged fight. And then he did something even more remarkable six weeks later in an Ashes test match. 
that was his golden time. It was the kind of... I mean, I, I, I wrote at the time that he would... You know, the, the, the first line of his cricketing obituary had been written in 2019. It looks like it hasn't. It looks like he's just started. <laughs> and and for, for a man who was out of the game last summer and uncertain that he'd be back in it, there was real genuine uncertainty from, from people around him and, and people mm. close to him that, that he could go back to the well and become Ben Stokes, the England talisman again. I suppose he must have spent a bit of time thinking about the game and about what it meant and about what he wanted from it. And we're seeing it play out in technicolor at the moment. Well, indeed, just to finish off on Stokes, his contribution with bat and ball was pretty limited in this match, which is even more testament to his contribution as a captain. You might have actually argued he could have been made man of the match for that alone. But um, it's, it's yes, we're going to have an awful lot more of these conversations over the next few months, Rory. But now it's time for us to take our final break. After that, we're going to be looking at the England women's team's successful start to their tour in the West Indies. Whether it's missing flights or retirements out of the blue, whether it's resignations or bans, as the old saying goes, there's never a quiet day in West Indies cricket. So make sure you listen to West Indies on 99.94 to stay up to date with all the latest fallout with the teams in Maroon. Welcome back. Rory has joined us Slightly. in the light. He's found a way of turning himself around 90 degrees, which is a great effort under the circumstances. <laughs> now then, uh, many of you could be forgiven for not even noticing that England's women have beaten the West Indies because scandalously, it's almost impossible to find. And when you do find it, the scorecards are wonky. Um, the coverage is ropey. But England have had a successful start. They've got mm. Nat Siver back. They've got Heather Knight back. They look like the side that's going to challenge for trophies. That's that's the, the sort of classic England lineup at the moment. But it wasn't all good news. Alice Capsey is out with a broken collarbone. And uh, Rory, you said she might be a doubt even for the World I think T20. so, yeah. I mean, they start in February. She is just this moment really flown home from the West Indies, broken collarbone. It's not an easy one. And it's not a super quick fix, that. Uh, we spoke to Nat Siver yesterday and she said she thought that Alice was... Uh, was sort of consulting a surgeon when she returns home, so it does feel it does feel like there'll be a bit of a a bit of a countdown on that. Um, it, unfortunate because she'd just been given the opening role. She opened the batting in that Test match, which was interesting because it's quite a stacked lineup now, isn't it? It it sort of bats mm. with Nat Siver and Heather Knight returning to the team that, that finished the summer. It bats pretty strong and pretty deep. Amy Jones at seven, I think. Seven. Um, so and then seven and, and, and a rejuvenated yeah. Sophie Eccleston, who's who's been yeah. winning games the Big Bash League so, with a bat. So the eight, the rejig involved yeah. Alice Capsey opening the batting, which is quite an exciting um, spot for her to take. So so to get one crack at it and then and then get injuries is unfortunate. I suppose Emma Lamb comes into the team in the short term, but there is. There are other ways of rejigging yep. that team because the bat. Or yeah, Danny Wyatt could could feasibly exactly. She open. sits at six at the minute, doesn't she? So the, the, there is a way of, of doing that, but it is unfortunate. I thought they did really well. They made three hundred and what three hundred and seven, which is a pretty a pretty good score on an Antigua pitch at, at Sir Vivian Richards Stadium, which pretty big boundaries, pretty slow outfield, 
it wasn't a crash bang wallop kind of thing. They, they kind of had to work for that score and it proved way, way too much. Um, but biggest takeaways, probably Nat Siver rocking back into the team and scoring 90 at almost a run of ball, <laughs> having taken time out for a mental health break. Uh, you know, a concern. These things are a concern. We, we know that we, cricket kind of deals with them a little bit better these days than, than a lot of sports. And then it's the schedule. It's understood that these things may have to happen, but a player as, as central to the, to the prospects as Nat Siver stepping away is a concern, but she walks back in near enough run a ball 90. We can be fairly confident. Things are good there. We, we I say I was on a call to Antigua. We spoke to her yesterday. Seems in pretty good pretty good spirits and um it could be a really a really good first tour for John Lewis this because knocking off the West Indies by a really big margin first up with a strong squad and Haley Matthews had a injury issue as well so I don't know what Haley Matthews situation is but it could be a quite a quite sort of morale boosting trip over there and not just because it's antique it's <laughs> a good start well yeah Yes, I mean it's it, it's to me though still an, an enormous shame that and and I say it again a bit scandalous really that we're not able to see and hear it with the same quality we would we, we come to expect from the coverage of women's cricket. It's um, I don't and I don't really know the reasons for it to be brutally honest with you. It was late. Um, it, it was it was it was listen the, the dates for this tour yeah. were were formalised and confirmed yeah. very very late. The, I mean the squad was announced. How many days before they set off? You know, it, it's. I do accept that it's not. Um, it's not great. The coverage it is of. It is available on BT, uh, on demand, I believe, something like that. Uh, but not not really, really out there to grab passing traffic, is it? It's kind of you've got to work pretty hard for it. But the problem is a bit wider than that. It's about oh, two are being arranged late, a squad being announced late coverage being confirmed late it's all it's all been treated a little bit loosely it, it has and i think that's a structural issue with women's cricket isn't it? it it's kind of moving at two paces there's the pace it moves at for uh, australia england and increasingly india and then the pace it moves for the rest of the world and so expectations are risen in the cricket loving public women's cricket loving public mm. of england and australia and then those expectations are somewhat dashed when teams go and play elsewhere so Look, hopefully it'll it'll improve. England have got two more ODIs. They've got three T20s. It's crucial preparation for the World Cup taking place in South Africa in February, and um, they're it's, off to a good seemed, start. It, and again, it seems like Lauren that... Bell had a pretty pretty good start out there in training as yeah. well as in the match. She's had good reports from the nets, and I think if you look at the some of the incoming talent, whether it's Lauren Bell, Izzy Wong, Freya Kemp. The fact that the new head coach, John Lewis, is a fast-balling specialist and you've got Matt Mason, super experienced campaigner, sort of also doing a sort of specialist fast-balling role alongside John Lewis, that seems like a really good uh, sort of division of labour there. Like The England team have got young, interesting seam-balling options and now they've got two really good seam-balling coaches. That could be a real sort of growth area for this team. It could, and it's uh, it's going to be an interesting series to try mm. and keep our eyes on, which is what we're here to do for you. <laughs> we'll be back later this week because we've got to run the rule over England's 
women's second ODI. And of course, we've got to try and work out what's going to happen at Multan. Are Pakistan going to prepare a, a less docile pitch because they need to win or will they just actually double down and try to score as many runs and as long as possible and sort of play rope-a-dope with England? Also, who are England going to bring in with um, Liam Livingston out? Ben Folkes presumably comes back as a specialist keeper. Will they try and mix up the fast bowling options? Is Mark Wood an option? We'll be discussing all of that nearer the time as the second test kicks off on Friday. Thanks for listening to England Cricket on 99.94, where we speak cricket every day. Please rate, review and subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can download the 99.94 app and follow us on Twitter at Norcross Cricket, in my case and in your case, Rory. At the RVD. Never miss out. Join our 24-7 conversation on social media and follow us at 9994DM. Cricket, every day, your way. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview. And Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.